welcome back to yet another episode of Ball With Y'all. It is a beautiful Wednesday here in South Florida, February 23rd. So great that you have chosen to spend just a little bit of your time here on Wednesday with us. Now, like always, we've got a full episode, so hope you are ready to get into some really interesting topics today. Whether you are listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, or if you're choosing to watch us on YouTube at BWY Productions, wherever you might be taking in our content today, we're so glad to have you. And again, get ready for a full episode. As always, be like, be sure to like, subscribe, rate, review, download, share with your friends, do whatever else we are. We're growing a lot here at Ball With Y'all and looking forward to that continued growth alongside you all. Now, where are we going today? Well, of course, we are coming off of a wild weekend in the sports world, particularly when it comes to the Daytona 500 kicking off the NASCAR season this past Sunday, a a wild race with a number of accidents and so on. We'll break down what we saw this past Sunday and what we think the main takeaways are now that we move forward into the NASCAR regular season. And then, of course, ultimately into the NASCAR playoffs. We'll then go into a big headline that that came out, uh, I guess it was Friday afternoon or so, that relates to a great deal of our listeners. It's not necessarily so much football players or football coaches, but there was one big decision that I feel like a lot of different folks that might be tuned in today might have an opinion on one way or another. And then, of course, we'll go into now that the Olympics are over, we'll go into what uh, what we think about those Olympics. Now, I, I, honestly, if you're anything like me, you may not have even watched the Olympics, but regardless, I still have some takeaways. And in fact, that might be a little bit of a tease as to what our big takeaway is as far as the Olympics go. So without further ado, let's get into story number one. So story number one, you know, we saw a lot of different things happen in the Daytona 500. We had a number of storylines going into the race, and we had a number of storylines coming out of the race as well. Of course, Austin Sendrick, the rookie in his rookie season, wins his first year, first race rather, uh, in eight attempts, I believe. Incredible effort for him. He was driving that two car that Brad Keselowski once drove, and of course, Fittingly enough, Brad Keselowski, he was pushing guys throughout the whole race, and and he never got to win the Daytona 500 in that two car. And Austin Sindrick, in his first race out there in that vehicle, goes out there and wins for Penske Motorsports. Now, of course, it was Roger Penske's, uh, it was his 85th birthday, I believe. Yeah, big win for him. Big win in the Cup Series, first Cup Series win for Austin Sindrick. A lot of people have been hyping him up, right? And I honestly wasn't really buying all the hype. I wasn't all in. I didn't really know what to take or what to what to really make of Austin Cindric because I'd heard, oh, he was a great driver at the, at the Xfinity level, the B level, if you will. I'd heard all these different rumors and so on. And there was a lot of expectation, right? And last year when he did well, he didn't win anything. But when he did well last year in the Cup Series, just running a few races here and there, some people thought there could be something special about him. And I didn't really know, right? And going to this race, I def- he definitely was not on my on my list, right? And if anything, I've learned that uh, if you want to win a NASCAR race, you don't want me to pick you because I said William Byron would win or he could win. And I said Tyler Reddick would win or could win. And I believe they both were, well, I know William Byron was involved in the first rack of the day and uh, Tyler Reddick was involved shortly thereafter. So um, once again, much like our picks in, <laughs> throughout the college football season and the NFL playoffs, if I pick you, you're probably going to see your team lose, basically. And in this case, if I pick you, your driver's probably not going to win. So uh, take that for what you may moving forward. But again, an incredible race. Uh, Austin Cindric, he just barely edged out Bubba Wallace. And he survived several big crashes as well. There was a major crash early on where Harrison Burton, 
got flipped up upside down and and William Byron went into the inside wall and uh, Alex Bowman got into that and Denny Hamlin got into that a number of drivers a number of key drivers were taken out in there and that in that wreck uh, Christopher Bell as well some drivers that were in the playoffs a year ago all of a sudden weren't even remotely involved as a result of that first accident pretty early on there was another accident shortly thereafter well I won't say shortly thereafter but somewhere around that ballpark where uh, Kyle Larson the reigning series champion he was taken out in uh, relatively quick fashion with a, a car that Kevin Harvick sent into the wall and then Larson went right into him. And then, of course, toward the end, you got Ricky Stenhouse. Uh, he was sent into the wall by uh, our dear friend Brad Keselowski, which, trust me, we'll get into Keselowski here in a moment. And then the very end, where Ryan Blaney's pushing his teammate, Austin Sindrick. And, you know, much like last year, where Penske, they had two drivers at the front. Last year in the Daytona 500, they had Brad Keselowski and Joey Logano up front. And those two teammates chose to not play like teammates that day. And they ended up in a fire against the against the right wall, and uh, Michael McDowell snuck by and won the race. And ultimately speaking, if I was a Penske driver or a Penske owner, I sat back and looked at last year and said, "Okay, well, you know, I might I might not necessarily win this race, but I just need to make sure that Penske wins the race." And there's only four Penske drivers out there: Ryan Blaney, Joey Logano, Austin Sindrick, and I'm forgetting the fourth one. Who's the fourth one? This is awkward. Well, I'll look up the fourth and while we're here, nonetheless, there's four pesky drivers out there, right? And you you don't want to mess it up for your team. You don't want to mess it up for Roger Penske, especially on his 85th birthday. So when it gets down to Ryan Blaney and Austin Cindric out there running for the win, you had to know one of them was going to win. And it was going to be because they were both going to, going to be strong teammates. And then when they were coming around the last corner, somebody was going to try to make a move. And that's ultimately what happened where Ryan Blaney, he tried to go around the outside, Austin Sindrick threw a block and ended up winning the race. Ryan Blaney ended up on the wall. A number of cars crashed after they got to the start-finish line. But ultimately, a Penske driver won because they played like teammates. Like last year, you had two Penske drivers at the front. And instead of last year, they actually worked together, right? And ultimately, that was the thing that we saw throughout the Daytona 500. The teams and the drivers that were able to work together, whether it was the Chevrolets working together, which... That's there wasn't that many Chevrolets because the accidents and so on. Bowman was out early. Byron was out early. Of course, ultimately, Kyle Larson was taken out. Uh, Tyler Reddick, uh, Kurt Busch had issues. Austin Dillon had issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Toyotas, there's only a few of them out there, but they were working together pretty well. And of course, the Fords. The Fords really own the day, as shown by Penske's dominance throughout the day. So ultimately, if your team was able to work together pretty well, you were probably going to win the race. And that's been a common theme that we've seen throughout many of the Daytona 500s and to the accident, the Talladega races and so on. And it was even more pronounced this past Sunday. Now, I mentioned that I was going to mention one particular driver because, uh, you know, there's a lot that you could take away from it that uh, Larson was out of the mix and Hamlin was out of the mix. And ultimately, Elliot, he did okay. He ended up finishing 10th. He kind of got mixed up in a couple of different accidents, but didn't really... Didn't really get too much damage in the process. Logano and so on. A number of drivers who you'd expect to do well this year, they didn't do all that well, right? And ultimately speaking, they will be better and they will bounce back and everything will be fine, right? And obviously I'd expect all the same drivers to be in the playoffs come, I guess, the playoffs start in August or so, September, somewhere in that neighborhood. But there's one driver who really stood out in this race and he didn't win. I think he placed top six or so, top eight. His name is Brad Keselowski. Now, I said, I believe, last, last week, I said that I thought Keselowski could win the race. Now, of course, Brad Keselowski, if you're familiar, 
has left Penske Motorsports. He was he was with Penske with Logano and Blaney and so on. He left them and said, "Okay, I'm going to go do my own thing, and I'm going to going to go run with Roush Fenway." And now it's Roush Fenway Keselowski. He's a part owner, and his his only teammate out there is Chris Busher, right? So when the duels take place on Thursday, I believe it was Thursday, and Keselowski wins his duel and Chris Busher wins the other duel, you're thinking, okay, well maybe maybe Roush Fenway Keselowski Racing has figured something out special here. Maybe they could actually do something big on Sunday. So I was feeling pretty confident when during last week's episode, I said, you know, watch out for Brad Keselowski. He might do something special. And ultimately he did. He was up there for a while. He was leading laps and so on. But there were two moments where I was reminded that Brad Keselowski, even though he's changed teams and changed colors, changed, changed cars and so on, his true colors have not changed. Early on in the race, Harrison Burton, five laps to go in stage one. Harrison Burton's a, a rookie, much like Austin Sindrick. And Harrison Burton's having a good run, right? He's up somewhere up toward the front. And Keselowski is just pushing him, pushing him, pushing him, which you should push, but there are certain areas where you should not push, right? Because if you get underneath the guy too much, give him a little bit too much air, he goes up into the wall. And then, you know, when you have that many guys going 200 miles an hour, you're going to see some pretty disastrous situations. Ultimately, that's what happens. He gets underneath Harrison Burton. Harrison Burton goes in the air. He flips over, ends up getting into William Byron, Alex Bowman, Denny Hamlin, uh, a number of other guys, right? All because Brad Keselowski did not push when he was supposed to push and chose to, chose to push instead when he wasn't supposed to push. Now, I understand he's an aggressive driver, right? But at that point in time, there's still uh, 170 or so laps remaining in that race. You don't need to push that hard. And again, this guy is a rookie in front of you in the form of Harrison Burton. And he's having the run of his lifetime in his first race at the Cup Series level as a full-time driver. And you chose to push him at the wrong time and ruined his day, ruined the day of a number of, a number of other drivers, including Denny Hamlin, who's a three-time winner. And then fast forward, we're thinking, okay, maybe Keselowski's learned his lesson. Well, fast forward toward the end of the race where Ricky Stenhouse Jr., somehow as a Chevrolet is having a great day, right? The, the Chevrolets did not have that well of a day. Again, Kyle Larson, he was in an accident. William Byron was in an accident. Alex Bowman was in an accident. Uh, Austin Dillon had trouble, had trouble all throughout the day. Kurt Busch was in an accident, Tyler Reddick, et cetera, et cetera. But somehow Ricky Stenhouse Jr. was up toward the front. In fact, he was running first, I believe, with about eight laps to go, somewhere in that neighborhood. And then Kazowski got behind him. And guess, <laughs> get ready. He gets underneath him at the wrong point and sends him into the wall. Stenhouse Day is done, just like that. And at that point, it's a little bit more understandable. But again, you have eight laps to run at that point in time. And I was reminded of what happened just a year ago, where Keselowski got a little too eager, a little too aggressive, and ended both his day and his teammates' day, and neither of them won the Daytona 500. And here we are again. He didn't end up winning the race, right? Uh, but he ruined the day of two particular drivers in the form of Harrison Burton and uh, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. And he proceeded to basically also ruin the day of a number of other drivers out there as well, all because he was driving too aggressively. Now, I want to make it clear, I'm not the world's biggest Brad Keselowski fan, right? Um, his, his, running, his run-ins with, uh, I believe, uh, with uh, Jeff Gordon has never really struck me well, right? And he never really comes across as, a, as the most upstanding person in the world. But, you know, I, I understand excellence when I see it. The way that he's driving right now is not excellent. And it's not really exactly 
uh, the way that you want to see your driver run. So if anything, if I learned anything from this race is that Keselowski, he's going to be good this year. He's going to, he's going to be a problem for a lot of different drivers out there, but I don't necessarily necessarily know that problem per se is a good problem to have in the NASCAR world, right? Beyond that, I don't really think that we learned a whole lot. Ultimately speaking, you know, the guys who, who didn't hit that well, Logano and Hamlin and so on, they're going to be better, right? In fact, they could just be better this week. So that actually raises the next point. Where are we going next week? The Auto Club Speedway in Fontana, California. Of course, this is the first time they've been there since March 1st of 2020. They did not go there last season. Alex Bowman, he won it in 2020. Kyle Busch, he won it in 2019. Martin Truex Jr. in 2018. And Kyle Larson, then not a Hendrick Motorsports driver, just, just driving a Chevrolet, won it in 2017. So to that point, Chevys have won three of the last five at the Auto Club, and no forwards have won the race since 2015. So looking ahead to next week, who could win the race? Who could could cement their spot in the playoff if it's not Austin Cindric. Well, of course, there are a number of early favorites. There's uh, Chase Elliott. His average finish uh, is ninth in five career starts at the Auto Club. Kyle Busch, of course, he, he won back in 2019. He has 11 top five finishes in 22 starts at the Auto Club. Keselowski, Brad Keselowski, I just talked about, he's going to be a problem this year. Five top five starts, or five top five finishes, rather, in 12 starts at the Auto Club. Larson, right? He has not, he hasn't run there too much. He's only has seven career starts, but he has three top fives in those seven career starts, including that win in 2017. And of course, Truex Jr., seven top tens in 20 career starts. Now, I mentioned that if, if, if I pick you, you're going to lose. So with that in mind, I want Kyle Larson to win. I want Brad Keselowski to win. I want Kevin Harvey to win. I'm just kidding. Um, in all reality, I think uh, Chase Elliott has a great run here. I think Kyle Larson has a great run, and I think Truex Jr. has a great one, has a great run as well. But but you know, if Keselowski wants to go out there just because I mentioned his name and and blow it up, that's fine too. Kevin Harvick, again, if he wants to go out there and fail, I'm all right with that as well. So ultimately, I'm going Chase Elliott, Kyle Larson, and Truex Jr. Those are my favorites going into the Audio Club next week. Now, like I said, we didn't learn a whole lot at Daytona, but I have a feeling we're going to start to learn a little bit more about these drivers come Sunday in Fontana. On to story number two. So again, this came out on uh, Friday, uh, Friday of last week. And uh, it, I think it really shocked a lot of people. I don't necessarily know that it shocked a lot of people, but I think a lot of people had an expectation as to how it would go. And uh, and it didn't, it didn't go that way, right? So it was uh, Friday afternoon that there was a vote as it relates to the college football playoff expansion. And that vote, went eight to three, eight in favor, three against. So normally you would think eight to three would be great. Well, I've come to learn that eight to three is not great. In fact, it's not enough. You need 11 to zero. You need a unanimous decision in that room among all the, uh, the athletes, uh, they're not, what are they called? The uh, commissioners, conference commissioners and Notre Dame's representative. You need all 11 folks in that room to agree, right? And, you know, I was reminded when I was reading the story, do you remember one of our first topics here on the show back in September? I talked about the Alliance, right? I talked about the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and the ACC joining forces, all because the SEC was getting Oklahoma and Texas to join their ranks. And I brushed it off at the time, and I said, well, okay, the ACC, eh, 
the Big Ten, who cares? The Big 12, or not the Big 12, the Pac-12, who cares, right? The Pac-12 hasn't done anything relevant in eight years or so. So I wasn't really that worried about it. And I, I brushed it off as if it was nothing. Well, who were the three commissioners that voted against the college football playoff expansion? You guessed it, the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12. So just when we thought the alliance was dead, it seems that they have struck again. We thought it was dead, but it is very much alive. Now, of course, they all have different reasons as to as to why they didn't want to vote for it. Um, in my opinion, it's pretty stupid to, to not vote for college football playoff expansion. Not, I don't want playoff expansion, right? I, I don't care for it. Again, we, we know where I lean as far as my team goes. And suffice to say, my team has done very well in the current format, so I couldn't care less, right? Keep it at four. I'm all right with it, right? But if I'm a if I'm a, a team in the Big Ten or the Pac-12 or the ACC, my best shot at getting in the playoff would feasibly be if there's more teams in it, right? I mean, how many Pac-12 teams have been in the playoff versus how many Pac-12 teams every single year have been in the top 10 or top 12? At least one, maybe two, right? Same idea with the Big Ten and the ACC and, and, the, and the Big 12 and so on. And ultimately speaking, the SEC is going to be fine, right? Whether they get, uh, I mean, they've gotten two teams in the playoff twice now, right? Both times, Alabama and Georgia. Every single year, they got at least one team in there. So just imagine how many more teams are from the SEC are going to be in the playoff if you expand it. So either way, the SEC is going to be fine. But from a, from the standpoint of, of, the, of the ACC, of the Big Ten, of the Pac-12, it comes across incredibly idiotic because you essentially just decided, eh, I'd rather just have a shot at not making the playoff whatsoever on a, on a given year, right? Whereas if you have a 12-team playoff, there's a pretty good shot you're going to have at least one team in the playoff, maybe more. Maybe maybe you're the SEC. Maybe you get three teams in the 12-team playoff. It's very possible, but it's not possible when you choose not to expand. And again, how many times have you seen the ACC or the, or the Big Ten or the Pac-12 get two teams into a four-team playoff? You haven't seen it, and it's never going to happen. In the SEC world, you can, and that's because they're that good. But you're not going to see it happen for the ACC, for the Big Ten, for the Pac-12. And as long as that's the case, there's every reason for them to expand and no reason to vote against expansion. And like I said, the SEC is going to be fine. Every other conference, whether it's a group of five team or group of five conference or, or a power of five conference, every single one of them benefits from expansion, ultimately speaking. So now why did the vote not go through? Well, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, first off, they're worried about, uh, about the Rose Bowl, which has always been something that's annoyed me. They think that it needs to be protected. They want to protect the time slot. And uh, it's all centered around the parade and, and wh when the game is played, what day the game is played, and so on, right? They want the best teams to go to the Rose Bowl and so on. Uh, now, again, as an SEC fan, I might be speaking out of turn here. I don't really care that much about the Rose Bowl. I think the Rose Bowl is a great game. This year was a great game between Utah and Ohio State. But some years it's not that good, right? I believe Stanford walked all over Iowa in 2016, 2017, somewhere in that neighborhood. So as long as that's the case, there is a possibility that that game is just not going to be good, right? And I don't know that we need to base our, our TV decisions, our voting decisions, our expansion decisions based around 
one game. And again, the Rose Bowl can be great, but this year the Peach Bowl was pretty good too, right? And normally speaking, the Sugar Bowl is pretty good as well. And the Fiesta Bowl has its moments. I mean, this year the Fiesta Bowl is pretty dang good, right? So you're going to see that. And I have no reason to think that we should protect one game. And I understand the Big Ten has allegiances to the Rose Bowl. I understand the Pac-12 has allegiances to the Rose Bowl. But if we could just for one second, take a step back and identify like, listen, yes, this game was important to us. But more importantly, we want to make sure that our teams have the opportunity to play for championships. And to that extent, that we are getting more revenue. I mean, you understand that if you are if you have a team in the playoff, your conference is getting more revenue as a result. So for example, for the Pac-12, who hasn't had a team in the playoff for a little bit now, they're not getting any playoff revenue. So again, I go back to, it's incredibly idiotic. And on the other front, on the other side of it, the ACC, they said that they just don't feel it's the right time. I don't know what that means. I think I think there's every I think there's every indication this is the right time. I mean, yeah, I know they talk about about the instability when it comes to name, image, and likeness deals and so on, but that doesn't matter, right? It feels like it's a cover up for for something. It feels like it's they're just kind of saying making a blanket statement to to avoid the inevitable. And as long as they're saying those things, it again doesn't make any sense. You you should want to have an expanded playoff just on the chance alone that you'll have at least one team in there, which you will. And you might get two, you might get three. But right now, if you're if you're the if you're the ACC, if you're the Pac-12, you're probably not going to get any. And as long as that's the case, there is absolutely no reason for you to vote against expansion. Now, of course, SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey had strong words. I'll read them here. He said that throughout the process, the SEC had made concessions that, in our view, were pretty substantial. He said Alabama and Georgia did not need to play another game to prove that they were the best two teams in the country and that Georgia was the national champion. Yet, they were willing to adapt to modern expectations to create opportunities. Others weren't willing to adapt to create those opportunities, so we'll have to rethink our views if at some point this process re-engages. There's a lot in that statement. I think he's showing the SEC. They understand they have, they're the power player here. They have the most to offer to, from a TV right standpoint, from a, from a talent standpoint, from a coaching standpoint. They have the most to offer. They know. They get it, right? And they were going to give a little bit. But ultimately, you're not going to get any, you're not going to make any ground here unless other conferences, other commissioners start to give in as well. Honestly, as far as what's next, I don't know that, that any of us really know what's next. As long as these commissioners continue to hold up the process, I think expansion conversation as a whole is kind of virtually dead, right? And again, we go back to when these commissioners start to give a little bit, right? When the Rose Bowl starts to become less and less important in the eyes of the Big Ten and the Pac-12, maybe, just maybe at that point in time, we'll get to see the, the, the playoff expand, right? But as it stands right now, I have a feeling that the SEC won't be giving any more than they've already given, right? And we can only imagine how much they've given up already. So ultimately, it seems like we are far way away from the playoff expanding. Obviously, we know now because of this decision, it's not going to expand prior to the 2025, 2026 season, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, but as it stands right now, honestly, I think this is just an incredibly idiotic decision on the behalf of the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC. That's okay. That's all right. No worries at all. We'll get there one day somehow.
On to story number three. So the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics, the 2022 Winter Olympics are over. Woo, right? I don't know if you watched the Olympics. I, I didn't even know that the Olympics were on as long as they were, right? I was, I'm really usually really bad at watching Olympics, but especially this year. Um, before we get into the actual Olympics themselves, sometimes we like to make things harder than they need to be, right? Uh, recently, the New York Times, they acquired this, this game called Wordle. Hopefully you've gotten to play Wordle, you're familiar with Wordle. It's a game where uh, you're tasked with putting together a five-letter word, right? It's like a combination of, uh, what is it? Is it, is it uh, catchphrase or chain reaction? Chain reaction, which is on the Game Show Network, and Wheel of Fortune. It's like a combination of the two, where you, you're given the letters, right? And you have to figure out what the word is. And you only have a certain number of tries to figure out what the word of the day is. You only get one word a day, and it resets at midnight every night. Now, of course, I start my day with a Wordle every day. And before the New York Times acquired Wordle, the Wordles were a whole lot easier, right? It was commonsensical things, right? I think one day, a big day for me was, was uh, pause, easy word, right? Or, or, or white, those kind of things. We're like, yeah, they're commonsensical. You use them in daily life, easy, right? And then when the New York Times acquired it, much like their crossword puzzles, they made it more difficult than it needed to be, right? Now you're getting words like, uh, like, uh, like cynic, right? Nobody uses the word cynic. Nobody, right? Uh, ultra, right? Which might seem like it's a little bit easier. It's not easy, right? Because nobody's expecting these words to start with you, right? Ulcer. When was the last time you used the word ulcer in a conversation, right? Nobody uses the word ulcer unless you're talking about a medical situation that literally involves an ulcer. So, the New York Times quickly made this game that everybody was enjoying. They turned it into something that was harder than it needed to be. And in the same way, uh, I think we're overthinking some of the Olympics stuff as of late, particularly when it comes to viewership. Because if you're familiar, uh, TV ratings for the Beijing Olympics, they, they were down by about 50% from the 2018 Winter Olympics up in Pyeongchang, I believe, South Korea. Uh, and of course, those 2018 Olympics were also well below the Winter Olympic standards as well when it comes to viewership. In the U.S. alone, uh, only 16 million Americans watched the opening ceremony, which was 43% below the 2018 Games back in Pyeongchang. So we know there was a drop in ratings, a drop in viewership, a drop in folks wanting to watch the Games, right? Why was that the case? I, I've read a lot of different things about this topic, a lot of different articles, watched a lot of different videos as to why viewership is down. And again, I go back to, I feel like we're overthinking this just a tad, a little bit like, like the New York Times has as of late. I feel like we're making this a little bit harder than it needs to be. I think it's very clear as to why the dip has taken place. I think mostly the issue is location for a variety of reasons, right? Um, of course, you know, some folks were protesting, right? They, they were protesting because of human rights issues in China. I am not that familiar with the human rights issues in China. I'm familiar that they exist, but I'm not, I'm not uh, as well-versed on those topics as I probably should be, uh, but definitely not well-versed enough to make a, 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 an informed opinion and comment about it here on the show. But I understand there are some, some human rights issues, and I understand people that don't want to entertain those games and don't want to 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 
to watch the games and therefore support China as a result. I understand, right? And then the next one kind of ties in here that there's a lack of connection with the athletes, right? You think about when I was growing up, Michael Phelps, big one. I would watch the the Summer Olympics just to see Michael Phelps swim, right? Or Ryan Lochte. I love Ryan Lochte. Still still love Ryan Lochte, even though he doesn't really do all that much. Um, Those kind of folks, right? Think of Usain Bolt, right? Uh, Fittingly enough, Sean Johnson back in the 2008 uh, Olympics in China, I believe. Um, Great, great moments for, for, for sport because you got to connect with these athletes. You got to connect with the people that they were, right? And uh, you don't really have those strong presences anymore, even at the Winter Olympics, like Sean White is not there, right? A lot of these folks that are big names here in the States just don't resonate anymore, right? And then on top of that, and again, I said it ties in well, you probably are familiar that the NHL chose not to send any of their guys to the Olympics, again, because they're cognizant of what's happening in China. I pretty much only watch hockey at the Olympics, at the Winter Olympics, because I know hockey. I watch it all the time, right? And I know a lot of the players, right? My favorite team is the Pittsburgh Penguins. So I know that Sidney Sydney Crosby is going to go out there for Canada and probably going to win go win them a gold medal. That for Russia, Evgeny Malkin is going to go out there and maybe get them a bronze, right? And uh, there are a number of other players out there that either former Penguins or current Penguins that are going to do the same thing. I don't have that luxury anymore when the NHL chooses to not send their players to the Olympics, again, because of where the Olympics are taking place, because they are aware of what is happening in China and they don't want to support that notion themselves, right? And then on top of that, timing continues to be an issue in the Olympics. The best events are in the middle of the night. This is the third trade Olympics that has taken place on the other side of the world, right? Uh, Pyeongchang, right? uh china here and then i forget what the what the 20 2016 uh, i guess olympics was um but for the most part these olympics have taken place on the other side of the world right where where nobody is is watching nobody is paying attention because again you're you're you're, you're waiting for these games at the middle of the night right these big moments in the middle of the night i was trying last year trying to watch some of the basketball and so on but it was coming on at midnight, right? And I, I have things to do the next day. I don't want to watch the U.S. men maybe win a medal, potentially. I don't know if they will or not. But I don't have the time to do that when, again, the games are coming on at midnight. That continues to be an issue. And ultimately, I know it will get better over time because the games will, will move to different sites. And I believe Italy is coming up next and Paris and, and so on. But you're going to see a, a very substantial drop when the games are at the middle of the night. Right. It makes a lot of sense. And I read some articles of people trying to, to, to explain it away, saying that, oh, well, streaming's up. That's great. Streaming is always going to be up, regardless of whether the Olympics are, are, are tanking or not. But again, I go back to people are going to watch most of the stuff out of convenience. Right. When you flip on NBC at night, if you're uh, just a general sports fan you want to see some olympics and you want to see some of the better events well you're not going to see some of the better events you're just going to see some random events that took place at some random time you don't know if they're live you don't know if they're not live but you know if you turn it on at two in the morning you're going to get one of the best live events there are again i go back to this has been an ongoing mission for the for issue for the olympics for a while now it's going to get better here shortly with the 2024 in paris 2026 in italy and again 2018 or 2028 sorry 
in in uh, LA, which again, that will be great for us in, here in the States, but then you're gonna see the, the reverse problem over there in China. So I don't know what the right answer is, but again, I go back to timing is going to continue to be an issue for the Olympics for the foreseeable future. Now, of course, apparently the US had uh, the fourth most medals at 25. And I literally had to Google that because like I said, I didn't watch a single event this year. And most people I know didn't watch either. It's not hard. These locations, these random locations, these locations on, on the other side of the world are just killing the ratings right now. And it, it's okay if, if you can justify it away, but we know how expensive it is to host the Olympics. And if these cities aren't recuperating their money as a result or even coming close to it because they can't get eyeballs on the TVs, maybe then we'll start to think about where the best places are to host the Olympics. But again, like I said, I don't see any point in like decoding this issue or trying to break it down any further and make it harder than it needs to be. The location for the Olympics, it continues to be an issue for the International Olympic Committee and particularly the larger media markets, just like the US has seen this year. And again, I think this year was particularly bad because China is particularly bad. I'm not gonna get into what that means per se, Again, I've talked about some of the things that China's doing. I think we're familiar with some of the issues that China is encountering right now and some of the issues that are, are, are festering throughout China. But it's pretty clear that China is not a good place. And the Olympics showed that with how bad the ratings were. Maybe the IOC will figure it out eventually, right? And maybe, just maybe, Wordle will get back to normal. I'm not too confident, but perhaps, perhaps we'll stop overthinking things. Perhaps. We'll take it back to the basics. Perhaps we'll do what Austin Cindric did this week and go in there with a childlike mindset and ultimately win the Daytona 500, not overthinking it, doing what he knows best. So that's the episode for today. Where do we go? We talked about Austin Cindric winning the Daytona 500. Who we expect to win the Auto Club race this week in Fontana? Big Chase Elliott, big Kyle Larson, a big Martin Truex fan this week. We talked about the college football playoff expansion, or lack thereof right now, with the Big Ten, the ACC, the Pac-12, all wrapping up and saying, no, we don't want to move forward with expansion. Again, to each their own. I think that's an incredibly idiotic decision. And then we wrapped up with the Olympics, breaking down viewership, breaking down why you didn't watch, and well, probably why you didn't watch, why I didn't watch, why so many others did not watch, and how it all comes back to the location that the IOC picks. And hopefully... They figure it out and hopefully world gets back to normal because I'm not enjoying these hard words that the New York Times is putting together. But again, I'm, I think I should get off my soapbox. When you say, as always, thank you for joining us. Uh, feel free to check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, uh, Breaker, so on. Instagram, Ball with Y'all Podcast. Quick side note before we leave today. We now have Ball with Y'all bumper stickers or I guess whatever else you want to use them for. But in this case, bumper stickers, uh, if you want to want to get one of these, we'll be doing a little contest on our Instagram. Instagram again at Ball with Y'all Podcast. Would love to get to, to see you guys over there. We'll be raffling them off later today, so please make sure you check that out. As always, thanks for joining us, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. And thanks for allowing us to talk some ball with y'all.